we are moving into a season called Advent. Does anybody know what that word Advent means? 25 days till Christmas. Yeah, you think of your, your calendar, right? Where you get to like, we have one where you get to move the little gift into the different pocket for each date that goes forward, but it was a mess up. And so it actually starts with two and then one and then three on the calendar. So Advent calendar, you think of that, right? It's like a countdown till Christmas. What, what's the definition of Advent? What does it really mean? Any other guesses? Coming, the arrival of, waiting, waiting for the arrival of. Yeah, it's, it's waiting and longing expectantly for the arrival of either someone or something. And so in this case, for Christmas, it's an expectant, hopeful waiting and longing for the coming of Christ, the Messiah, the rescuer who would come and make all things right in the world. And that's what God's people had been waiting for. They were in this long period of Advent that was thousands of years waiting for this rescuer to come. And we know that he has come in the person of Jesus. But then he is also gone again. He came and he defeated sin and death. And then he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to bring you. I'm going to usher in a new home for you. I'm going to renew heaven and earth and reunite them again. And we are waiting. We're waiting expectantly. And we're hoping for this to come. And so we just got done going through three-month series through the book of Daniel. And now for the month of December, we are transitioning to look at the Advent the first advent of Jesus and, and also the second advent period that we're in now. And while we were going through Daniel, my wife brought to my attention that it sounded like I really loathed teaching through Daniel because uh, it was just lots of weird prophecy stuff. I just want to make it clear, I actually really loved it. I loved going through the book of Daniel and I loved that it was primarily about shaping God's people for how you live, faithful to God as king in the midst of a culture that's seemingly being run and ruled by humans or even by dark forces. How do you live in the midst of that with God as king? And so I love that, but also it pointed us to this waiting that God's people had, right? They were waiting and longing for this perfect king. Daniel chapter seven says, this one like a son of man who would ride on the clouds and take the throne above heaven and earth. The only one, the only man who can also rule with God above all things and bring in a perfect, peaceful, complete, whole heavens and earth. And this is what God's people have been longing and hoping for forever. Now, when I talk about hope, I want to clarify what we mean by that word hope, right? Like, I, we say we hope a lot of things. Like, my mom used to hope she would win the lottery, and she would spend tons of money on lottery tickets and this hope that one of them would be a winning ticket. I used to hope, because I read too many comic books and watched too many movies, that one day someone would invent this super suit that would give me like superhuman strength and the ability to run faster than any other person. I could be a real life superhero, right? Uh, my, my sons are hoping for certain things for Christmas. Maybe your kids are hoping for the new iPhone. I don't know. When I was a kid, I also had this hope that one day my mom and my dad would get back together and our family would be whole again. All of these things we, we call hope, we say it's hope, but really they're more like wishes because they're not founded in any reality. 
the reality is that the, the chances of my mom winning the lottery are like slim to none, right? The reality is nobody's going to build a super-powered suit to make me a, a superhero. And if they did, it would still be very impractical, expensive, and dangerous. The reality is my parents never, ever said or did anything to give me any inkling of the reality that they would get back together. And in fact, they always said and did stuff that led me to believe quite the opposite. And yet, I still wished it would happen. But that's not hope. Hope is something that is founded in a promise and evidence to back up that promise. And so as we spend the next four weeks looking at these promises that God gave to his people throughout the centuries leading up to the first coming of Jesus, we're going to see also that he backed that up every time with evidence that his promise was good and that he would make good on his promise. While we're going through that, I also want to just remind us, I posted this on our Facebook group and sent out the email newsletter as well, but we do have an Advent guide and it's a weekly Advent guide and we made it weekly on purpose for two reasons. One, because then I didn't have to write something for every single day. And two, because I, we were talking with RMC and with a few other people about the reality that nobody is going to make it through every single day. If you, if you are one of those people, awesome. Please teach us how to be more disciplined like you. But most people start these devotionals and they're doing it every day and about day five, life gets busy and they miss it and so day six comes and they go, oh, Darn, we, we missed that day. We got to go back and do that one. And then they end up like four days behind and they just give up on the whole thing. And so in order to not make this feel like a checklist, we gave you a weekly guide that you can just soak it in and just saturate yourself in a truth every week. Now, if you are looking for a daily devotion, we have that as well. And you can see me, I'll give you info for that. But this one is one that we will be going through as a whole family that coincides with what we're talking about here on Sunday mornings, not just in here, but also with our kids. And so when you see that, there's page one, it has the story that we're learning that week. Page two is what the teachers are doing with the kids over there on Sunday. Page three is what you as an individual or family or as an MC can do in your homes that week as well. All right, and there's kids' crafts and things like that. So I just want to make that clear, and I want to put that out before us so that we can all enter into this season intentionally keeping our eyes and our focus fixed on the hope that we have of the coming Savior Jesus. All right? Now, as we are moving in this season and hearing the, promise, the promises that God has given to his people about this coming hope, we're going to move through the story and we're going to start at the beginning this morning. So we're in Genesis chapter 3. And so if you want to open to that now, or tap to that now, Genesis chapter 3, we're going to be reading verses 8 through 19. And I want to give us some context. I want to back up to Genesis 1, and I'm just going to give you the overview, okay? And so what we know is in the beginning, God created all things. And he made all things good. He made the stars in the sky and the moon. He made the clouds. He made the, the earth. It was without form and it had nothing in it. And so God started filling it. He, he separated waters and made dry land and he caused vegetation to sprout and grow. He put animals and livestock to feed on that vegetation. And he put birds in the air and even critters on the ground. He put things in the sea. And his crowning glory 
as the creator of all things is he makes this creature that is distinct from all the other creatures because this creature was to be a representative of the creator. This kind of hinge between creator and creation. A creature that is one like the creator, right? A representative, a a mirror to reflect all the rest of creation back to who and what the creator is like. And that creature is called man. And he creates the man, and then it's the first time ever that he says, this is not complete. Something's missing. And when he says that, when you read through Genesis, and at the end of each day he says, this is good, and this is good, and this is good, the first thing he says is not good is that the man is alone. And that word there is actually this word saying, this is good because it's, it's complete. I'm done with this day's work. This is good. Done with that day's work, Right? But he gets to man, one man, and says, this is not complete. There's something missing. Because this creature, remember, is to be a representative of what God is like. And God himself exists and dwells in community. We know now, on this side of creation and this side of getting the true story written down for us, that that community is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But we we hear in Genesis that... Moses wrote down, he writes it as God, Yahweh, and his word breathed out by his spirit. And so because God himself exists in community, three persons in one, this one man cannot be an adequate representation of what God's like to the rest of the world. And so what he does is he takes from that man himself a rib and he forms another human being, one like that man, a woman. And he walks this woman down the aisle, so to speak, to unite them as one. And when man, the first man, Adam, that's what that word means, first man, when Adam sees this woman coming to him, he's like, at last. It's almost like this. I don't know, for any of you who've been married, if you're a guy and you see your bride turn around that, come down the aisle for the first time, it's like breathtaking, Right? And he bursts out into poetry, into song. This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She has come from me and she is part of me and she is with me and we are united as one. And it's beautiful and it's perfect and everything's perfect now. And then God says, not only is this good, but this is very good. This is complete. This is as it should be. And this is the totality of my creation. Now, he he then at the end of that day, is able to rest. Not because God's tired, but because his work is complete. What he's done now, he has given everything needed, everything necessary in creation for this distinct creature, humanity, to care for it, to govern over it, to make sure that everything's going the way it should be going, and also to extend it, to cultivate it, to bring out the potential of it to develop it, to extend this beautiful garden God has put on this earth to the ends of the earth. So this is their call. He says, be fruitful and multiply and go out and extend this to the rest of creation. And this is how the world is always meant to be. But something goes terribly wrong, right? So what we know in Genesis, what happens 
is that there is another creature there on this planet, another creature in the garden. Now, if you remember, God created these creatures, humans, to be distinct in a way that they were to govern over the rest of creation to show what the creator's like. And now here's another creature underneath them coming to subvert them and to twist what the creator had said and get them instead to listen to him. So the serpent slithers up and says, listen, does God really love you? Can you really trust him fully? You see, he takes the one thing that God asked them to stay away from. In the middle of this utopian planet that God had placed these creatures on, there are two trees there. One is the tree of life. And he says, you can eat from this just like you can eat from any other tree and you will live forever with me. And the other tree is a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Or a better translation, the knowledge of what is good and what is not good. Don't eat that tree. You're, you're called to go and care for the garden, take care of it, eat from anything you want except that one tree. Now, a little while back, we had this thing called Soma School where we had a bunch of pastors and their spouses and church planters in a room and we read what we call the true story of the world. And it's a summary version of the entire Bible condensed and put in chronological order. And we stop and we ask questions and we dialogue. And it's amazing to see people who have been like their seminary graduates or they've been Christians their entire lives and like light bulbs are going off. And they're suddenly hearing something that they, they never put together before for the first time. And when we got to this part, there was someone who asked the question, I just don't understand why would God put that tree in the garden to tempt them. Has anybody else ever asked that question before? Yeah, be honest. What's it even doing there, right? Why? I don't know exactly. But I do know this. I know that I have a home and I have other people in the home with me and my children, it's their home as well, right? But there are things in my home that are off limits to my kids. Like I have knives in the kitchen that they are not to play with. Those knives are a good thing. They're not a bad thing. They're a tool for me to use in order to help me prepare or more likely Bethany to prepare dinner for the whole family, right? But I tell my kids, don't play with those. It's not for them. And I think what happens is we, we start getting in our heads that like this earth belongs to us. And it's only for us. And God's distant. He's up in the clouds and he's just dropped us off here. So why in the world would he put that there for us if it's not for us? Because this world is not ours, it's his. And he's not distant up in the clouds. He's actually coming down and walking and talking with humanity in the story. And so maybe, perhaps there are things in this world that are not for us because we can't handle them, but they are for God. I don't know, that's, that's one possible explanation, but I think here's the reality. The reality is, what the, the gist of this story is that this was the one and only thing God asked them to stay away from, and they couldn't do it. He gave them everything else they needed. Not only everything they needed, but everything they needed to have a flourishing, beautiful, sustaining, joyful, and complete life. They didn't need this. 
And yet, the serpent slithers up and says, did God really say you can't eat from this tree? And the woman says, yeah, yeah, he says we can't eat from it, but not only that, we can't even touch it, which is actually adding to God's command. He just said, don't eat from it. Remember, you're supposed to care for it. And so he says, why not? And she says, if we eat from it or if we touch it, we will die. Now, God did say, if you eat from the tree, you will die. So that part's true. And so what the serpent does, because he's crafty, he's wise, is he takes what God had said to the man and the woman, and he takes their understanding of what God said, and he starts playing games with them. And he says, no, 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 you won't die. You see, God knows if you eat from that tree, you will have this knowledge and understanding of what is good and what is not good. And then you will be like God. You won't need him to come and tell you what's good and not good anymore. You'll be able to decide for yourselves. And so what they do is they look at the tree and they say, that sounds good and that fruit looks good. Why not? And they believe the voice of this creature slithering on the ground over the voice of the creator who made them in all things. And so now we're going to pick up in Genesis 3, verse 8. And they, that's the man and the woman, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid Because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust. And to dust you shall return. Father, we pray that you would open up our hearts and our minds and our ears to receive, to understand, and to be transformed by your word this morning. God, that your spirit would fill us with your truth. God, that the things that we still question and wonder about, that we would be able to turn to you, to lay down before you, and to trust you with. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the story has just gone south pretty badly, hasn't it? God shows up. He, this, this is a place where he would meet the man and the woman regularly. They would walk and they would talk. I mean, could you imagine that? Not only is the world perfect, there's no war, there's no 
There's no pain. There's no sickness or suffering. There's no death. But you get to see the face of God, the one who created all things. And you get to be with him and you get to talk with him. You get to ask him, what's that? Like a little child, what's, what's this? Well, what's it do? Why? Why? Right, like a little child to a parent. And he's answering. And he's, he's explaining what he made and he's going, this is how I want you to care for it. And so God shows up again one day, but something is different this time. Something has gone terribly wrong. And he asks, where are you? Do you think that it's possible God had no clue where they were? They were that good at hide and seek. That God, the creator of all things, who we, we hear in the psalm sits above the circle of the earth. He's, he's so far above, he could see that it's a circle. Do you think that he could not see where they were? Why would he ask, where are you? Any thoughts? Maybe he saw in their hearts that they were being distant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's almost like, hey, I, I'm here. I've moved toward you like I always do. Where are you at? Why have you gone away? Right? Why are you hiding? What else? Did you eat the cheese puffs and there's like orange dust all over the face, right? Yeah. Did you do this? Yeah, it's like he's given them this opportunity to fess up. Come to me. Don't, don't run from me. Run to me. I'm here. Why did they run in the first place? We just watched a Christmas story last night with our boys to officially inaugurate the Christmas season. And do you remember when uh, Ralphie gets in trouble? If you haven't seen the movie, I'm not spoiling anything. It was made in 1983, so watch it. It's on TBS every year. But he, he gets in a fight, and then he's just like deathly afraid that he's going to get in trouble when his dad comes home. In fact, his little brother is crying underneath the kitchen counter because he's going, Daddy's going to kill Ralphie. And mom's like, he's not going to kill him. Yes, he is. He's going to kill him because he got in a fight. And so Ralphie's under his covers, and he's like, he hears his dad's car pull up in the driveway. He sees the lights from his headlights, and he's like, oh, no, here it comes. Right? So there's a sense of like, oh, no, we've done it. We're in trouble. Dad's coming home. All right? But there's also this reality that they, they ran and they hid. And in fact, we didn't read this part of the story, but even before that, they started hiding from one another. Suddenly there was shame. Have you ever done something you knew you shouldn't do and yet it felt so right and good in the moment and the second you do it, the second you've given in, suddenly this wave of shame overcomes you. I knew I shouldn't have done that. I messed up again. It wasn't everything it promised to be. Right? There's, this, there's this clarity. Like they, Their eyes, in a way, are opened when they eat from this tree. This knowledge of what is good and what is not good, suddenly they do get that. This is not good. And they hide from each other, and then they hide from their creator. But he pursues them. I think this is key as to why God comes and says, where are you? Because over and over throughout the true story of the world, when you read through the scriptures, what you see is a God who continually moves toward and pursues his people time and time again. 
And you see this pattern of the story repeat itself where the people will turn and run away from God and yet he will pursue after them. And they get themselves in trouble and they call out and he comes. And so this is the beginning of that pattern happening right now. They're moving away and running away and they're in shame and brokenness. And he moves toward them. But there is discipline, right? When you find out your kid did eat those cheese puffs, when you find out they did make that mess, when, when they did get in a fight, like there, there's got to be some type of discipline. There's got to be a way to deal with that so that you can correct them. Now, God had promised them, if you do this, you're going to die. And so what God could have done in that moment is just crush them, right? Does he do that? No. Now, God's word was true. Do you remember in Daniel when we were reading through that? And he had told Jeremiah, hey, you're going to be in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. And then he comes to Daniel and he's like, yeah, but actually your captivity is going to be 490 years. Remember we talked about that? It's not that God lied to Jeremiah, like that really happened. But there was also a deeper part of that story. And so in the same way, God says, you're going to die when you eat from that tree. But the The deeper truth of that is what you are doing is you are bringing death into the world and into your very bodies. The process of death has now begun. There is now a ticking talk on your life. Why? Because God cast them away from the garden. And do you remember the other tree in the middle of that garden was the tree of life. Do you remember in that garden in the cool of the day was the life giver himself walking with them in perfect community. And now what they have done is they willingly have separated themselves. It's not that God says, if you eat that tree, I'm going to come and slaughter you. It's that God's warning you, if you eat it, you're cutting yourself off from life. That's, listen, that's the warning of the sin that you and I are in every day too. We are cutting ourselves off from life. And how often do we keep turning back to it? Like Proverbs says, like a dog goes back to its vomit to look it up. I have a dog. They do nasty things like that. We're smarter. Remember, we're distinct and set apart from other creatures. We're made in the image of the creator. We should have more of a wisdom than that. Don't keep turning back to those things. And so God starts giving out judgment on all three of those who have just disobeyed him. Who are the three characters? Yeah. The man, the woman, and the serpent, right? So this is what he tells them. He first doles it out to the serpent. He says, you're cursed above all other livestock, all other beasts. You're going to slither on your belly. You're going to eat dust all the days of your life. And then he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. So now, not only between you, serpent, and the woman you just deceived, but her children and your children. And he says, suddenly he switches back to the singular. Your children and her children, he, so that offspring is plural, but there's one who will bruise your head even though you will bruise his heel. A better translation than that, actually, is he will crush your head. Have you ever crushed a snake before? No? Me neither. I was hoping someone here maybe has experienced that and they could tell us and describe us what the sound is like or what it feels like. No, okay, that's too much. I've never done it, so I can't tell you. Have you ever been bitten by a snake before? 
No, no one in here. Maya has been. Maya has been. Oh. She likes to play with them. Because <laughs> she likes to play with snakes. I wish she was in here so she can tell us her experience. Did she cry? No. no. That's a tough girl. Was it a garden snake? Was it a garden snake? It was, it was not a cobra. That's good. Or a rattlesnake. Okay. So, snakes slither on the ground. They're at your feet. They're at your heels. You get this picture, this imagery, that this snake is going to come and bite at the heels of the women's children. But there's one who, even though he will get bit, he will also stomp on the head of that snake and crush it. Hold on to that. God's not done yet. Then he turns his attention toward the woman. And women know this. He says, I'm going to multiply your pain in childbearing. This is before epidurals were invented, okay? It's going to be painful. Now listen, in this is this implicit idea that childbearing was always part of the plan, right? Be fruitful and multiply. He's not telling her a new thing here. The new thing is that you will now have pain when you go through the process. I'm still going to allow you to produce life, though. I'm still going to allow you to live out the call I gave you to be fruitful and multiply. Isn't that incredible? But it will be through pain. Your desire will be for your husband and he shall rule over you. There's not enough time to go into all that. There's lots of debate on what that means. Uh, One of my, what I think it most likely means is her desire will be to be over in control of the husband and yet he will find ways to be over and in control of her. And we see that playing out in so many sinful ways throughout the history of the world and even today where that is done in oppressive manners, right? Then he says to the man, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, implicit in that is not listening to my voice. He says, I said you shall not eat of it, but you listen to her. The cursed is the ground because of you. So Adam had this task to care for the world to cultivate the garden, to bring out the potential of the rich vegetation. And now, it will no longer produce for you the way it was intended to. There's not only this fracture in your relationship with your wife or a fracture in your relationship with me, but even in the relationship with you and the rest of creation that you are called to care for. In thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. And listen, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. God's putting Adam back in his place. Do you remember where you came from? You were dust on the ground, and I formed you with my own hands, and I breathed my breath of life into you so that you can walk and talk and think and learn from me so that you could receive from me what is good. And you decided to take this idea of what is good and what is not good for yourself, to separate yourself from me, the one who breathed life into you. Without my breath of life in your dust, you will go back to being dust. I mean, do you guys know how many pounds of dead skin flakes are in your sheets every year? It's a lot. It's gross. I know. That was meant to be cringe-inducing because that's your body turning back to dust. Do you know that? 
Like, that's what it looks like. Your body is wasting away. Your skin cells die because your whole body is eventually dying. From the moment you are born, you are on a process leading toward your grave. Every single human, no one has escaped this because this process of death was inaugurated the moment that the man and the woman listened to the creature over the creator. And so God comes to them and before all that, remember he's given them this opportunity, turn back to me, where are you? I'm here, where are you? And he goes, how do you even know to run and hide? Did you do the thing I told you not to do? Right, remember those conversations with your kids too, parents in here? Did you do the thing I told you not to do? You know they did, right? Adam's response, what does he say? The woman. I didn't mean to point directly at my wife. (laughs) But she, she said it, so. The woman that you gave me. I was fine on my own before you brought her here. And then she deceived me. The woman you gave me, it's a double finger point, a double blame. He's not just blaming the woman, he's blaming his creator. He's blaming God. Wow. My kids have done that to me too before, by the way. Like, did you really just do this? Well, dad, if you hadn't, uh, I'm like, whoa, stop right there. Uh Uh-uh, we're not playing that game. So then he turns to the woman and she does the same thing. This serpent deceived me. Like, all right, we're just passing it down the line. Uh-uh, it wasn't me, it was him. No, it was her. Like, and you just keep doing this. And so he's gonna, God sees through all that. He knows it's all of you. You're all in trouble. When I was a kid, I was one of eight kids and there would be times where it's like, all right, who did this? And everyone's like, I don't know, I don't know. And so we'd all get grounded for it, right? The problem was we all knew it was this one kid and we would all be like, it's him, it's him. But because he didn't fess up to it, they're like, I have no way of knowing. You're all grounded. Go to your room. And I'm like, that's stupid. So this is different. All three of these characters are. They are guilty. And so God comes at all of them. Now, in those three curses, those three disciplines that we heard, though, which one of them has the worst? Which one has the worst news coming? What was that? The child, yeah. <laughs> the one bringing forth children in pain, yeah, that's probably true. No, the serpent. What is the serpent told? Yeah. If I had a giant putting a boot to my head, like that's, it's not good, right? It doesn't bode well. That's the only one who gets this discipline, this curse spoken of final death. Do you remember God told the man, well, if you eat of this, you will die. But the only one he gives that curse to is the serpent. And to the man and the woman, they might have heard this as hope. So they're sent away from the garden. We're told if we read the rest of Genesis 3, they're sent away and like God puts the fortress down over the garden. They cannot get back in. And they're out now working in the thorns and the the thistles, not the lush garden anymore. And Eve does give birth to children. And imagine 
if they were remembering back to God's promise. There will be enmity, there will be hostility between the serpent and his offspring and the woman and her offspring, and she's given birth to a child. Perhaps they're holding on to that hope that God had given. Maybe this child God allowed us to have could be the one to rescue us from that serpent. And instead, if you know the story, what happens is they have two sons, and one of the sons murders his own brother. So it's not really going well, right? That promise to go and crush the head of the serpent instead was twisted and misdirected and crushes his own family. And even in that, God comes and he gives a promise too of protection to the brother Cain who killed his brother Abel. You're banished away now even from this part where there's thorns and thistles. It's going to get even worse for you. And he goes, it's too much. I'm going to be killed and murdered out there for what I did. And God goes, no, I'll protect you. Whoa, even a murderer. Even a murderer, God is still holding out protection over his people. And so this word of hope that one day an offspring will come and crush the head of the serpent is a word that God's people carried with them for generations and generations to come. In fact, I want to read from Romans 16 for us right now. This is even after Jesus comes and we're seeing, we see that he actually does become the one that we're promised. He's born of a woman, isn't he? He's born of a human woman, the offspring of the woman. He enters into the world, but not like a normal human being. He enters through the breath of the Spirit of God. Right? He is born of woman, but a virgin woman who only is able to have that child because of the Spirit of God. The same breath that was breathed into the first man giving him life, he was not born into sin, but he entered into it, that first man. Every other person was born by the sin of that man, except for this one, Jesus. Born of the woman, and yet born perfectly of the Spirit. I know. Don't try to think about it too long because you'll break your brain. But this is what God does. He's taking what it was at the perfect of creation and he's bringing it into the brokenness of the now. And so he comes and he lives the way that humans were intended to live at the very beginning of the story. To be that perfect representation of the creator to the rest of creation. Jesus walks around showing the rest of the world what God himself is like. And then one day, one day, he is bruised by the serpent. That promise that you will bruise his heel comes upon Jesus. Jesus himself is beaten and bruised and whipped and spat upon and cursed and hit and mocked and finally tortured and killed. Taking that Punishment that God promised from the beginning, if you do this, death will surely happen and death comes upon the only perfect human being ever because he also is the perfect son of God. But he takes this, he enters into it and when he goes in that tomb, 
he is bruised by the serpent. But listen to this. When he gets up three days later, when he steps his foot on the ground, it's like his heel is crushing the head of sin and death. And he walks right out of that tomb. Same body that he came into this earth in. That body was not in the tomb. The tomb's empty. Jesus isn't just a spirit somewhere right now, but he is fully God, fully human, still in physical form, walks out of that grave, crushing the head of sin and death, the punishment that we were owed. But the promise is not fulfilled yet. You see, that was the first advent, the first waiting. It wasn't done. Because if you remember the promise, the promise was not that he would crush the head of sin and death, but that he would crush the head of the serpent himself. And so Jesus rises victoriously in the power of the Spirit, and he goes to be with the Father, and he goes to prepare a place, a kingdom, that he would bring down to earth for us. And this is what we're told in the book of Romans. After this has all taken place, Jesus has risen. He's made this promise he will return. He's even now given the gift of his spirit, who he entered the world in, who the first man became alive with, and who he rose from the grave in, to all those who would trust him and believe him. All this has taken place now. And to the church in Rome at this time, Romans 16, verse 17, says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not deserve, do not serve, sorry, our Lord Christ, but they serve their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Pause for a second. What does that sound like? Yeah. This serpent with smooth words and flattery causes dissension and divisions and creates obstacles to the word God had given. Right? does not serve our Lord, but their own appetites. This serpent that comes in and says, doesn't this look good? Taste it. For your obedience, verse 19, is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil or what is not good. The promise was you eat from this tree and you will find out what is good and what is evil and you can decide for yourselves. And what we are being told in Romans is, no, 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 you can be wise to what is good and be innocent. That means have no knowledge of, innocent like a child who's never experienced it, have nothing to do with what is not good, what is evil. You see, that lie that the serpent gave at the beginning of the story that lie was that somehow you don't know enough because you don't know the difference of good and not good, good and evil. But the reality is the first man and the first woman had perfect knowledge of what is good already. The creator of all good things, the giver of all good gifts, the God who is truly good and perfect in everything he does was walking and talking with them and pointing things out and teaching them about everything. He was their knowledge of what is good. They had full knowledge of it in his presence. What they didn't have was knowledge of evil. They didn't need that. This isn't for you. And so the author of Romans is telling us, listen, this is, he's, he's very purposefully trying to take us back to the garden. 
and tell us this is what we need to. This is what we were created for. Be wise as to what is good in Christ, but innocent over what is evil. And then because he knows that this is not reality anymore though, even though this is the way it was supposed to be, this is no longer the way the world works now because of our sin, because of our rebellion, because of our brokenness. Verse 20, he gives a promise. The God of peace. That word is shalom. Wholeness. The God who at the end of day one said, this is whole, it's good. At the end of day two said, this is whole, this is good. Day three, four, five, six. Finally, this representation of what I'm like, two distinct people as one and in complete unity with me and with the rest of creation. This is perfect completeness. That's that word shalom, peace here. That God, verse 20, will soon, what? Crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Who's gonna crush Satan? I just read it for you. The God of peace, right? He's the one who's victorious. He's the one who will accomplish it. It's his power that will overcome Satan. It's his power that will crush the head of the serpent, but crush him under whose feet? Your feet, church, follower of Christ. He will crush the head of the serpent. He will under your feet. I wish I I could draw a diagram right now, but you guys know my iPad Drawing on this thing never works out. And so imagine with me here, okay? You have God, the creator of all things, and then you have creation down here. So God's up top, creation down here. God is over it all. He made it all. And then he sets as a mediator in between humanity. So we're in between caring for creation, pointing it to the creator so that the rest of creation knows what the creator is like. That's the order of things at the beginning. And yet, a creature down here comes and tries to subvert our place. This creature slithering on the ground comes and says, listen, you could be like God up here. All right, so no longer in the middle, you could be up on top. And the irony of that is that by listening to the creature that's under us, we've actually put ourselves under him. So the promise that you will be up here is actually twisted and we're down on the bottom. We cannot crush the head of the serpent. And you know that every time you try to overcome your own sin, every time you try to undo the problems of this world, every time you try to take control of your own thoughts that are going on inside of you, we can't do it. We're powerless. We have put ourselves under the serpent. And so we are not above it to stomp it out. But this promise... This promise is that the one who came to stomp out sin and death is coming back. And not only is he going to crush Satan, but he's going to lift us up. His power becomes our victory. He will lift humanity up, putting us back, restoring us into the place we're always intended to be as rulers over creation, partnering with the creator, pointing the rest of creation back to what God is like, and God will crush Satan underneath our feet. Isn't that good news? That's good news. This is the promise that God gives at the very beginning of the story. 
And it's not an empty promise. It's not something that sends the people away going, man, I wish that that were true. But it sends them away with a hope because they know, wait a second, we're not dead yet. Wait a second, this God, he clothed us. When they left that garden, I can just imagine that promise ringing in their ears. That serpent's head's going to get crushed. It's going to get crushed one day. One day. And they know it's true because God himself cared for them even in their brokenness. Because when he sent them away, he sent them away clothed to cover up their shame. And he told them one day this shame will be covered completely when my son takes it upon himself. All of God's promises are accompanied by evidence of his grace, by evidence that he is at work in the world. And as we continue through this month going through Advent, we will see that that God promises a true and better king that will come better than the King David. And there is evidence of that wrapped in the promise. Do you see what I'm doing now? This shows you what I will do one day. He gives us evidence that there will be one who will come and take all the suffering upon himself. And you and I, we have evidence that Christ will return one day and fully accomplish this, crushing the head of the serpent. Why? Because he has already come and crushed sin and death for us. And so as we're in the second advent, waiting for Christ to return, we look back to the fact that he already has come and he has accomplished everything on our behalf. And he will do fully and finally what he said he would do at the very beginning of creation. What does that mean for us today? What does that mean as you enter into this holiday season and you have gifts to buy and you got bills to pay and you got people arguing in your car on the drive home and you got a boss that you can't stand and you got school that's hard? What what does that mean for here and now? It means that in the waiting and the longing, there is hoping. And that hope is built on an assurance. It means that as you enter into the brokenness out there in the world, you are also going with the power of the spirit who brought Jesus into this world and who has been passed on to us. You do not go alone. You go with the promise and the evidence of God's grace and you live in such a way that there's hope that you can actually even give glimpses here and now of what our role was intended to be as humanity, caring for the rest of creation and pointing to others what God, our creator, is really like. So pray with me that we would do that.